Good morning, everyone. What a great and exciting morning that we can dedicate children to the Lord. Awesome. We're going to continue on our series today in dealing with Romans chapter 8. Our title here this morning is God's Ultimate Purpose for You. And really, just want to leave the introduction as something very simple. I don't know what circumstances you are in or what's going on in your life, but I want to tell you that my prayer and hope is that the Holy Spirit will make Jesus a little more real for you today. Amen? And with that being said, let's begin our passage today. It's from Romans, 20, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. It's been called the golden chain. And we're going to start to discover what that actually means by reading the very first verse. And this is what it says. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, all things. Apparently, those words that Paul had written for us can also mean and interpreted as everything. And that means everything. That means the good things that go on in our life, God can bless us and turns obviously good things even to better things. But it also means when the bad things happen, God can use those things and turn them into something beautiful and something good. And that is a supernatural work of God in our lives. Even things that people have done to you with the, inter in the intention of hurting you and harming you, God can take those situations and supernaturally turn them around into something good. It can't be done by anybody else, but God's presence protects those who trust in him and love him. There is a lot of hope going around here. And that is the power of God working in our lives. Some may actually object to that. Wait, is Paul trying to trivialize my suffering? Does he actually have any idea of how I was raised, the injustices that I've suffered? Would you actually say that, Paul, if you knew what I went through? Or how about those who've gone through cancer? Paul, do you have any idea what it's like to go through chemo and radiation treatment? Is there anything good that can possibly come from something like that? Fair question. A tough question. But it is worth asking that because Paul's intention is not trying to minimize or marginalize the difficulties that we go through, but to recognize them, to appreciate them, and to embrace them. But God's grace is even bigger than whatever problems we can go through. In a light of eternity... All those things become much smaller in the light of his absolute power, his absolute promises, and his absolute love for you and I. Uh, we just talked about Rolando. I saw him here this morning, and I said, hey, Rolando, how are you doing? We've been praying for you. And he came up to me all excited, and he told me I can see this. He goes, Harv, are you actually preaching today? And I went, yeah, I am. He goes, then tell everybody that prayer works. I... And he's so excited, he mentioned it probably no less than six times in five minutes. He's pumped. He should be actually up here preaching right now. Uh, it's very interesting. He said, you know, when I went through the whole process, they actually said to me how lucky I was. He says, no way, man. I am not lucky. I am blessed. God can take the negative stuff and turn it into something beautiful as we walk with him. Amen. Well, that was a little weak, but I'm trusting that you're catching it in your heart. On we go. Let's go to the next verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. 
And now we're starting to really get into some meat here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, at, that he might be the first among many brothers and sisters. Powerful, powerful verse. But in my mind, I'm sensing <clears throat> a distraction. Over here, we have this exit sign over here. It says, no entry. It's closed off. In my imaginative mind, that whole area has just buckled with a thud. And it's alarming. And there's another big thud, and that exit sign is bouncing across the ground. All that metal, all that fire door is all swung to the side. Bricks are falling, all that sound baffling above it. It's all peeling back, and in he comes. A huge elephant. And I'm not just talking about your average garden variety elephant. I'm talking about an African savanna bull elephant, the largest land animal on earth, standing 13 feet at the shoulders and weighing a magnificent 24,000 pounds. He is a Mack truck with a beating heart and a brain. Something to be perhaps concerned about, but don't let that throw you off because what he's terrified of is bees. Fun fact, courtesy of New York Times. Now, this elephant's right here right now and is trying to swipe the mic away from my hand. He's a big distraction because there's an elephant in the room. And the best way you can deal with an elephant is to acknowledge them and address them and then politely ask them to leave. And that's what we're going to do right now. The elephant that we have in front of us right now is a single word, and it's a word predestination. Predestination, not so much the word, but the misunderstanding of it, because it comes with great weight and gravity if we don't really understand what it really means. Because the problem behind it, potentially, is that it can cause division, confusion, even fear and doubt. And that is not the intent of what Paul is writing here. That word actually is meant to be great comfort. So how can we break it apart? What's the issue? When you actually think about it, if God's sovereignty is in charge of the entire universe, and he is at the top, unanswerable, to anybody else, he's the top. When he says something, it's done. And if he exercises that sovereignty in your life, do you actually have free will? Big question. And it's not a theological question. It's been a question that's been asked throughout the ages in more circles than one. The Athenians, the Greek culture, they prize philosophy. They love thinking and talking about stuff. And especially in the great city of Athens itself, in the Areopagus, is an area where they debated often. The leading question that they had was, what is truth and what is reality? Because if you can't dial into that, how can you actually live life properly? There's two schools of thought that were argumented in this quadrant. One is called the Stoic Philosophical School. And its paradigm, its belief system was, is that there's more to life than what you see. That somewhere there's a metaphysical, a supernatural realm beyond your senses, and it's incredibly intelligent. It doesn't do random at all. This universal reason, or logos, the universe, is in he's in charge of the universe and has 
unstoppable fate. And the best thing that you and I can do is line ourselves up with this avalanche of this determination and hopefully sail in the right direction. Otherwise, you're just going to get run over. The other school of thought is the Epicurean school of philosophy. Their paradigm, their worldview is what you see is what you get. There is no such thing as direction or purpose. Only a massive amount of chaos as personal wills colliding to each other day after day after day. And the only thing you can possibly do is find some kind of utopia in your mind as an ocean away from all the chaos that's around you. So when Paul comes to Athens and preaches Christ Jesus, dealing with these questions of free will and sovereignty, they were incredibly interested. Paul actually went to them and shared Christ through philosophy, and some of them came to faith. Imagine that. But for us in our Canadian culture, we don't really prize philosophy, but we certainly prize our freedom. The very fact that we're actually even here in this room is a constitutional provision for you and I to have the freedom of association and the freedom of faith and the freedom of speech. It's protected in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> also, we also know the sheer value of freedom. We remember it every year on November 11th of the great cost and sacrifice associated that we would be set free from political terrorism and oppression. We call it Remembrance Day to remember those who paid the ultimate price for freedom. In our justice system, if a convict or a guilty person or a person is found guilty of a crime, they are punished by losing their freedom with imprisonment. We as Canadians and globally cherish our freedom because it's important to us. And here we see in Scripture that it seems like there's maybe potentially a threat in that direction. Is really God's sovereignty something that sucks the life out of our existence? Is something even less than human? And yet the Scriptures almost seem like they actually suggest that, but it's a misunderstanding. But nonetheless, there's a battle of conversation that has occurred for centuries. On one side is the Calvinist side, the predetermination side. They believe that God has arbitrarily chosen you to either receive Christ or not, which means you have no choice at all. God either chooses you to be a believer or you don't become a believer. This is an important thing to understand. This position argues that faith itself must be a gift of God, distributed according to his sovereign will, completely independent of any attitude desire, or behavior of those he elects. That is a concern. Because if that is actually true, then Jesus didn't die for everybody on the cross. He only died for some people only. 
And if you actually interpret it that way, you better have a good pair of scissors in your hand because you're going to have to hack away John chapter 3, and particularly 2 Peter chapter 3, where it says God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone coming to repentance. Do you hear that? And here we have scriptures that kind of suggest that and, or misunderstand it, and it causes controversy. And then there's the other side that really favors free will. It holds the position that God's sovereignty is a, and human free will are compatible with each other. But there is even a bigger danger here in fact, because if you put too much emphasis on human free will, it opens the door to conclude that we have the ability, the capacity to preemptively turn to Christ on our own merits. And if that is the case, then the result will be that we can give ourselves a pat on our own backs and not on Christ's salvation alone. And we can initiate God's grace ourselves. This is dangerous because it's a humanistic point of view. And it's got nothing to do with the heart of God. It says this in Romans eleven thirty two: For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, this whole predestination thing, it's confusing and yet it's so important. It's a huge elephant. We have addressed the elephant now. Now it's time to get that elephant out the room. Amen? How can we possibly get past all this jargon and all this kind of a heavy emotional, psychological stuff and actually get to what Paul is trying to say, which is a message of hope? It's quite easy. Let's just keep in the context of Romans chapter 8. Let's just keep focused on it. What's behind Romans chapter 8? What are the threads that hold it all together? One of them is consistently a theme of family. Constantly. Pastor Marl even alluded to it last week. Pastor Joe has been alluding to it. This whole idea of family, but it's not a natural family. It's a family put together through adoption. So as we focus actually on the concept of adoption, it starts to actually help us untangle some of the questions that we have. And actually even more importantly, come back to the heart of what this passage is. is a message of hope for you and I. Through his determination, which is nothing more than the manifestation of his mercy. How can we see that through adoption? Well, what happens in adoption? What initiates adoption? The first thing that is initiated through the process of adoption is a tragedy that defines a need. A tragedy. A child is forever separated from their parents. It's often done by, sometimes by abandonment, but sometimes, and most likely, it's because of death. They have belonging. They had a home. They had security. They had protection. They have love. It's all gone. They have nothing. They're on their own, and they're at a sensitive age. They can't fend for themselves. They can't protect themselves. And if someone doesn't step in to meet those needs, they are doomed. It's dark. It's really dark, but that is where it starts. And so it is with you and I. When God created the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden, God had fellowship with them. It's actually pretty cool. When you actually read through the first couple of chapters of Genesis, you see that God had made arrangements to catch up with Adam every day 
at the end of the day, it says that God would come down and walk with them and ask them how his day was. That's literally what it says. They kind of hung out. The master of the universe and this created being, they had a friendship going on. And God had a little dilemma, kind of colluded with Adam. He goes, I'll tell you what, I, I made everything, but I, for some reason I haven't found the time to name everything. How about if I make everything and you name it for me? That's the kind of relationship that was there. But then mankind or humankind all of a sudden disobeyed God. They took part of the fruit that they were not supposed to, and it brought in sin, and the result of sin is death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death that's absolute and complete. Death separates us from God. Not just in this lifetime, but in all time. And we could like to blame Adam and Eve for this, but the Bible makes it very clear that it's not just them, it's us as well. Romans 3 says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Also Isaiah 53, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own ways. And the Lord has laid the iniquity upon, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And it goes on to say later in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. Not just a physical death, but a complete death. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's permanent. And if you read the next passage of Scripture, Isaiah 64, it alludes to it very strongly that all the efforts I could possibly make, all the religious activities I can do, all the money I could possibly give and volunteering this and being a good guy, and this, it ain't going to cut it. It will not be enough to secure that relationship back with God. As far as it is with us, we are doomed. There's someone else has got to step in and fill in the gap for you and I. Otherwise, we're orphaned, and that's where we're going to stay. But that's only the first step. What's the next step? The need is met by someone else. Now we're on the uptick. Now the news starts getting really good. So you see this orphan. They don't have anybody. Someone walks by, maybe a relative or friend or complete stranger. They hear the story. They see what's going on, and it's really bugging them a lot. And they go home, and it's festering in their mind. Well, that's so unfair. And all of a sudden, they come up with this idea that's only in their head. I'm going to do something about it. I am going to take that child into my home, and I am going to change its destiny and give him something or her something better. It's not up to the child. It's up to the person who is showing what? Mercy. They're not going to be alone anymore. I've decided to give them something. I'm going to give them my life and I'm going to share it with them. And you're stoked inside because of this incredible well of mercy shoots up inside of you. This is important to note because adoption is adoption no matter how it's presented. It kind of follows the same thing. But you know what, before you sign that document that you're going to take the child, you better think about it. How much is it going to cost you? Think about it for a second. Just a couple of dollars, a little bit of emotional energy. I'm not too sure about that. You start with clothing them, feeding them, 
giving them shelter. They start growing up, and then you take them through hockey. All right. And then they start acting up and causing a lot of trouble. Now, there's emotional energy. And then you decide to be an assistant coach for hockey. It's like another part-time job. Now it's time. And you just keep on rifling those three currencies around. Real currency, time, and emotion. It doesn't matter how you look at it. The junior high years, oh my heavens! Out comes the emotional currency. You're getting bankrupt. They said they're gonna be home at 10 o'clock. It's three o'clock in the morning and they're not home. You're losing your mind. That's coming down the pipe. Their first car, college, weddings, their first house, they need help with absolutely everything. And after they have run you dry and you're on your last breath, they take everything. I mean, you can't even go into the ground without them stealing your Timex watch. You're going down. How much does it cost to adopt the child? Exactly everything. And what do you get out of it? Anxiety? Really? What's in it for the parents? Not a whole lot. But they're not really thinking about themselves, now are they? This is important. Really important. So, do you really want to adopt a child? Like when you have your natural children, it's really, you know, it's already kind of coaxed for you. But when you actually have the option of either doing yes or no, will you? Especially if they're not really your own children. But then you start thinking about it. If you don't take them, they have no future. They have no choice now. But I, seeing that child, or you seeing that child, see something else, a different direction. Now you start looking at them and seeing them being happy, content, and being 100% safe in your home. You see yourself taking them to school for the very first day. You see yourself struggling to find the door handle in the fridge because of so much artwork is magnetized to the fridge door. You see all the fourth place and fifth place ribbons from track and field. You celebrate that with them. The bandages on the knees, the triumph of learning how to ride a bike. You see that all, and you can actually see there might be some tough years ahead. But when you think about it, you wouldn't want anyone else to be there except you. They graduate from high school valedictorian. They go through college. They fall in love. You're there at their wedding. You hold their kids in your hands your grandchildren. And then at that last day, just when you think you're being wrung dry, you look at them in your last day and you realize, I did not regret making that choice. You know that deep inside. And so you take the paper and you're about to sign and someone goes, are you mad? There's nothing in it for you. You're going to get ripped off. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm all in. Why? Is there something wrong with that person? No, they've been cannibalized by mercy. That's what it is. And so it is with you and I. God saw us coming before he ever made even one molecule, before time began. 
He saw you and I. He saw the tragedy. He saw the need. And he wants to fill that need. He realized the cost that would be involved. And it wasn't the act of creation. It was going to the cross to save you and I. It didn't cost God anything to make the universe. I need a glass of water. I'll survive. It didn't cost him anything. But when he went to the cross, it cost him everything. Ah, I'm rescued. You got elephants in a room. I got frogs in my throat. I don't know what to do. Thank you. That helps. God emptied himself to become a human being in the form of the person of Jesus Christ, born of immaculate conception, lived a sinless life, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And he went to the cross to die for us, to give us the opportunity that we can belong to him. How important that is. It says this in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that says this about Jesus himself. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. The joy? That's mercy speaking. That's predestination speaking. It's comfort. He thought about it, weighed it out, and even though he's on the short end of the sick of it, he says it's still worth it because he's thinking about mercy and bringing us into his family. How important it is for us to understand that. Well, what happens next? Well, it's not that glamorous. What happens next is time, waiting, patience, and love. The would-be parents are stoked. They've got the kids. It's everything they want. They're willing to pay up. They thought about it. They're all in. Well, what about the kids? Are they buying in? Probably not. There's probably a time lag that's going to occur. You have no idea what those kids have gone through. There may be massive trust issues for them. And they are the only ones that can release it. Nobody else can. The parents are helpless to wait for their own autonomy of their own heart, their free will, to catch up. Can you hear that? Let me give you a personal example of that. Me and my brother, we were adopted. We, the whole idea of being stranded on a life, you know, highway of life is a cliche statement. For me and my brother, that was a reality. Highway 93, just inside the Alberta border, a family of five, reduced down to two in a single hour. Me and my brother were literally stranded along the highway, 93. Nowhere to go. Eventually, though, through that tragedy, through the establishment of the need, somebody filled it. And it happened to be my dad's youngest sister. who came up from the States to claim us as their children. And they walked into the room. I remember this so clearly. They walked into my grandparents' room. I kid you not, I've never seen them before. I'm five years old. This is my aunt, apparently. Never saw her before because they're living in the States. And they made a big boo-boo. They said, hi, we're going to be your new parents. Big smile on her face. I lost it. 
What do you do when people are strangers and they try to invite you in? What are you supposed to say? No, no, no. That's what I did. I lost it. I didn't want to go with them. We just buried our parents. I don't know who they are. I don't want to go with them. That's how it is. And they had to bribe me with a dog. I sold out sheep, and I went with them anyways. Okay, so it's not really, you know, romantic in a way. And there we are living with them in the States. Don't know anything from anyone. And my mom told me a couple years ago, that is my aunt, that is my mom. And she told us a couple years ago with her eyes welling up. She goes, you know what? You guys weren't even like kids in the house when you first got in the house. You have no idea how tough it was. You guys were like disenchanted spirits, like ghosts in the house, is what she literally said. You guys didn't talk, you didn't laugh, and you didn't fight. Like, what's the wrong with matter with you guys? There's nothing great with you guys. And I remember that. I remember us at the crack of dawn, just when it got light, hours and hours before we had breakfast, me and my brother would steal away into the living room, and we'd turn on the old stereo, the, you know, the turntable, start flipping 45s, and also big fat 8-track. How many of you remember those? Oh, yeah, you're ancient like me. Okay, that's really groovy stuff. Okay, we were listening to gospel music, country music. I even think there might have even been some Johnny Cash in there. I like to think that anyways. We listened to whatever we possibly could. And all we did is we sat in that rocking chair together and we never said a single word. We were in shock what was going on. We couldn't adapt. And we just sat there in that chair for hours and hours rocking. And we did that day one, day two, day three, Week in, week out, month after month, we sat there in that chair because we didn't know how to process all the change. And these are people that are calling us to be their parents. I don't even know who they are. Supposed to be a home. I'm not even American. I'm Canadian. Is this going to change up? I don't know what's going on. We were scared spitless. But you know what they did? Probably sitting up in bed at 6 o'clock in the morning listening to Johnny Cash playing and it burns, burns, burns. They're like, we're going to have to let them alone. They were wise enough, wise enough and loving enough to just let us be. They had to wait. And they waited. But they were consistent. They made us breakfast. Taught me how to throw a football. How to catfish. Good stuff. And they tucked us in at bed at night, tell us how much they loved us. And we just kept on rocking in that chair, not saying anything. And they just kept at it, being patient. And I don't even really know when it happened. But at some point, I imagine, quite openly, I ran up to my aunt, put my arms around her and squeezed her like a big tooth of toothpaste. And I looked at her and said, I love you, mom. That's when she became my mother. Not any other time. It's her like sovereign will meeting my personal will. That's how it works. My brother took over a year before he could come to that same conclusion. How beautiful that is. And so it is with us. This is the engine room as we start to wind down and come to our conclusion. It says this in Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, when we're not ready, Christ died for us. Powerful. The next verse really sums it up. We love because 
he first loved us. You're going to remember probably that big elephants are scared of bees, but I hope that you actually can remember this more importantly. The next verse, God's kindness leads you towards repentance. It's God's kindness and his mercy that draws us in. I like what it says in Romans chapter 3.20. Jesus is revealing himself to the apostle John at this moment in his later years. And he's coming in full glory and full authority. And he's mincing no words with the seven churches of Asia at the time. of The things they're doing right and the things they're doing wrong. And at the end he says this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. What door? The door of our hearts. I find it fascinating. The one who guards every door and has all the keys of the universe. When it comes to a human heart, he doesn't do the Shazam thing and kick the door in and take a stone. He knocks and the almighty of the universe waits for us to catch up. Oh, it's so powerful. It's just Love it. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I would encourage you, if you've heard this for the very first time, or maybe you've heard it for a hundred times, but you feel something tugging on your heart right now and saying, I want, I want to be a part of this family. I would ask you to open up your heart to him today. But in conclusion, we need to finish up quickly. What happens next well, we just had child dedication. That was awesome. A lot of young ones. I was adopted when I was almost 14 years old. Or I, had, I was dedicated when I was 14 years old. My brother was almost 17 when he got dedicated. It actually cracks me up when I think about it, but it's, it's beautiful. That's how long it took for the adoption to go through. About eight years. And at the end of it, man, was my dad ever stoked. You know, he gave me his name. He he gave me an inheritance. And he's really the kind of guy I'd hope to be, actually. You know, not trying to be melodramatic, but really, he's just that good. Double blessed. He passed on, and, and of course, I didn't get the will. My mom did. But a couple of years ago, she gave me her will, which is kind of like both their wills. And she goes, here's my will. So, uh, you know, as soon as I kick the bucket, uh, I want you to go to the bank and take care of everything and make sure you get it done first thing. I'm like, well, can I have a chance to at least grieve over you and bury you first, Mom? Is that okay with you? Like, really? You must be so morbidly excited about being bankrupt by death. Like, it's okay, Mom. It's going to work out. She wanted to give us her estate so quickly in that way. That's what it is in the heart of a parent. You get everything from them. And so it is with us. In Christ, you are given a new name. And it's Jesus Christ branded across our lives. You have an inheritance that cannot be taken from you. Moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. It's yours in Jesus Christ. And he's exactly the kind of person you and I want to be. That is our focus. That is our purpose to become a little bit more like Jesus in everything we do. It's not a killjoy. It's a triumph, a triumph, and a triumph. And our last verse, Romans 8.30, and we conclude with this. It says this, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, well, I got to read that again. And those who were predestined, he also called. 
those he called he has justified, and those he justified he also glorified. It's the golden chain. Five things have happened. God's foreknowledge, predestination, call, justified, and glorified. It's a timeline from infinity past to infinity future. Before time ever began, God saw us and gave us a destiny before anything happened. And when Christ was, um, was raised from the dead, we have the call of God, the gospel message that goes out to all humanity. And we are justified when we respond, our hearts to Christ. And he gives us a new start, takes away our guilt and shame in our own past and makes everything new. You're justified, you're set free, and you're clean. And then there's being glorified in moving forward that we'll always be in God's presence no matter what happens in this life and most certainly beyond the grave. We have nothing but something to look forward to at all times. Interesting, interesting, the word glorified referring to the future, is used in past tense. That means the future is already happening now, as when we receive Christ in our lives. That's why it doesn't matter what happens. We have a living hope that is absolutely indestructible in Jesus Christ. That's yours today. Whatever you're going through in life, I want to tell you something. God sees it. He understands. He wants to lead you through it and bring you a little closer to his heart. Amen? I'm going to ask you now, we're, just, we're going to pray, but I'm going to ask you, if there's something in this message that's touched your heart, and God's speaking to your heart, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hands, and I'm going to pray with you that the message will sink into your heart. Why don't you join with me now? Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are here in this room, Lord, who have been impacted by your word. Lord, and there's needs here that are going on. Maybe they need healing, Lord. There's difficulty and strife. I thank you, Lord, you see this. May your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, do a powerful work in their lives. May they not lose the hope that is theirs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And if there's someone here that has heard this message now and has never ever heard anything like that before, and you want to receive Jesus Christ into your life, you can do that today by simply opening up your heart and saying, Lord, Forgive me of the things I've done. I want to be a part of your family. I want to put my hope and trust in you. You can do that today. And if that's the case, I'm going to ask you now to agree with me in prayer in your heart and mind. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. Lord, for those who are right now, Lord Jesus, are wanting to give their hearts to you. Lord, we want to receive you into our hearts, Lord Jesus. Forgive us of our past. I believe in you personally, Lord, for the work that you have done, and it is mine. Thank you, Lord, that you can receive me now by faith in your promises, and I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And if you've done that this morning in your heart, you're a part of God's family now. It might not be much fanfare, but you know what? It's the beginning of a new supernatural future for you. Make sure you tell someone about that as well. God bless you.